As we look at the word of God this morning, we look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you. And say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and to invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, saying, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadad and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? He said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. And he sent and he brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Uh, Here we are back in 1 Samuel, and it seems as though we are coming back to the same kind of theme, wrestle, issue that we've been dealing with for a while in 1 Samuel, and that is choosing a leader, choosing a person to be in charge. And a lot of times what we've seen here in 1 Samuel is that we've seen this is the person who has the title of leader, but they don't have the character of leader. This is the person who has been chosen and they've got the position, but they don't have the depth that's inside of their life that they need to have. And so we've been cycling through different leaders and we've been seeing the failures of those leaders. And so here we go again. It is time once again to choose a new leader. One of the things that we see is about the process of the importance of choosing leaders. It's a really big deal. Part of what 1 Samuel is telling us, part of what God is telling us through these passages of Scripture is who your leader is makes a world of difference. Now, the easy application, the kind of the gravitational pull when we say that out loud is we think big elections, We think national elections. We think statewide elections and say, oh, it's really important who we choose as those leaders. And there's no question that those leaders are really, really important. 
But I want to remind you the importance of leaders that are much closer to home. I would tell you that the character and the quality of leaders that you choose, say, inside of your church, is a really, really big deal. I would say to you that the leaders that you choose inside of your family is a really, really big deal. I would tell you that the people who you chose, that you choose in your circles, your social circle, to be the person who leads and directs and influences and, and people kind of follow, who you choose in those places is a really big deal. Now, I don't want to minimize those big, big elections, but I'm going to tell you that the quality of your spiritual life is impacted by the leaders that you choose much closer to home than folks who live in big state houses and white houses and all those things far away. Your, your spiritual leaders in your church, the people who you choose to be part of the anchoring of your family and of your social circle, those leaders matter more than anyone else and will have more influence of your life than anything else. Now, the good news is we get to choose those leaders far more effectively then we get to choose those big ones. Not every time the guy that I want to win wins. But in terms of who I choose, in terms of my social circles, the kind of family that I structure and build and, and invest in, I get to choose those kinds of things. And so that's a really big deal. Now, this passage does speak about choosing a national leader. Now, I want you to think just for a moment, what if, what if, Hold on, here we go. What if the leader of the free world, the next leader of the free world came from your house? What if the leader of the free world, the next leader of the free world came from your house? Now, maybe let's make that a little bit less awkward for the person who's sitting next to you right now. And let's kind of back that up and say, what if the leader of the free world came from the family that you grew up in, your brothers and sisters, your siblings? We talked this morning, I tried to see who had big families. Who grew up with a big family? Lots of brothers and sisters here. Uh, all right, how many? Ten, all right? Ten is the leader in the clubhouse. Anybody else? More big family. All right, we had 12 in the service this morning. Somebody had a family of, of 12 that they grew up in. So let's take your 10, or let's take your three, or your four, or your two, or whatever it is, and let's say the leader of the free world is coming from your sibling group. Now think about that group, and think, now, for people who knew your family, who would they have chosen as that leader out of your family? Kind of think through, line everybody up. Who is it that they would have chosen? Okay, next question. Who in your family would have been shocked that they wouldn't have been chosen? Who was the person like, they chose somebody else? It wasn't me? I can't believe they didn't choose me. Who would you have chosen to be the leader of the free world coming out of your family? And then, you know, the, the, the most obvious point is who is it that God would choose to be that person coming out of your family? Now, that'd be a great question for you to ask over Thanksgiving lunch. You know, if one person at this table had to be the leader of the free world, who do you think uh, it should be? It, it'll spice up that turkey, I promise. Uh, just throw that out there, see what happens. Uh, it's probably going to be an adventure anyways. Uh, so just go ahead and throw that in there. Now, this question of which member of the family should be the next leader 
is actually the very situation that we're dealing with here in 1 Samuel. And so we're going to try to take a look at the passage and see what happens in a little town called Bethlehem when Samuel shows up to anoint the next king of Israel. Are you ready? Good. Um, Now, the first thing that we have to do is a little bit surprising before because before we can go for before we can go forward we have to deal with some stuff in the past and in fact there's a little bit of an issue that Samuel has to deal with because before God gives him the direction of who he's supposed to anoint he has to tell Samuel that there is a time for moving forward There's a time for moving forward. Did you see that there in 1 Samuel chapter 1? It says, And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? See, the reality is is that Samuel was still upset. And he was hurt. And he had taken some offense. And there were some wounds inside of his life because of the failure of Saul. Now, there are some reasons why this happened in Samuel's life. First of all, it was kind of personal. Remember the reason that they came to choose a new king? Is they came and told Samuel, and this was the quote. Remember, you're old and your kids are a mess. You remember that conversation when somebody got voted on to, to, to have that conversation with Samuel? You're old and your kids are absolute chaos and we don't want them to be our leaders. So... Yeah, Samuel's a little bit bent out of shape about who they chose as a leader. He's also upset because he is the prophet. He is the pastoral figure for the nation. And the nation has said, you know what? We don't want to have God as our king anymore. We want to have a king that looks like all the other kings. And so that kind of is an attack on his lifelong ministry guiding the people of Israel. Not only that, he's had a front row seat for just some of the knuckleheaded decisions that Saul made. He's been there and he's watched and he's seen all of this stuff unfold and he's seen Saul just completely be disobedient. He's seen Saul reject the things of God and he has to kind of be there time and time again saying, Saul, you messed this up. Saul, you messed this up. And in fact, we see in the last time that Saul messed things up that it just breaks Samuel's heart. I think that that breaking of Samuel's heart wasn't even a pure spiritual, I care so much about the things of God. I think that Samuel was so personally invested in this. And the fact that they wanted a king was a replacement of his life and his ministry and his kids. And then when the fact that the guy that becomes the king who's a replacement for his king, his kids, because his kids aren't getting it right, turns out to be such a person who displeases God, that bothers Samuel to his heart. And so God has to say to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over this? There's a part of what God is saying, listen, you can't be more upset about this than I am. You can't hold on to this longer than than I hold on. This is an issue between me and the people and you're acting as though it's, it's all about you. You see, I think that there's a best description that we could see here for Samuel is that Samuel's pouting. Samuel's mad. He's mad about what happened then. He's mad about what happened months ago. He's mad about what happened years ago. All the people keep doing stuff that's wrong and messing up his life and those things. And he's mad and he's pouting. Now, I got to tell you, I think that there's cause for that. There's real hurt in his life. 
But I'm also going to tell you that you can search the scriptures all the way through. And you're never going to find a verse that says, blessed are those who pout. It's just not there. So one of the riskiest things that you can ever do in life is to put your arm around somebody and say, you know what you need to do? You need to get over it. You need to move on. Now, I say that as risky, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about that, because what we have a tendency to do is to say, the things that have hurt me, the things that have offended me, oh, those are really, really big deal things. I mean, those are terrible injustices. Those are the worst things that could possibly ever happen. But the things that have happened to you, well, that's not really that big of a deal, and you just need to get over it. And so a lot of times we say, you know, you just need to move on. That's because we have overvalued our pains and undervalued the pains of others. And so the truth is, it's really kind of risky to put your arm around somebody and say, you know, what you really need to do is you just need to get over it. You know that because some folks have told you that a time or two, haven't they? And that has not been a blessed moment when someone says, just get over it. See, here's the thing about those kind of wounds that we have in our life. One is they're real. And they hurt. I was watching a football game yesterday afternoon, and uh, one of the players started limping. And the announcer said, you know, you can just tell how experienced, great athlete that guy is because he knows when he's hurt. Listen, man, I knew when I was hurt, like I'd been alive five minutes. I knew what hurt was. I must be an even greater athlete. I've always known when I've hurt. I mean, there's just this little signal that says this hurts. Relationally, you all know what it feels like to hurt. Those are real. And I think one of the reasons why it hurts sometimes when somebody says to us, get over it, is because, wait a minute, you're not listening. You don't know how much this hurt. But I also need to, need to just tell you in, in love and compassion and because I care about you is that there's no hurt or wound that was designed for you to take to your grave. There's no hurt or wound ever that has happened in your life that was designed to stick on you to the moment you stopped breathing. Now it hurts, it stings, and it stays, and it lingers. But I'm telling you, God never said, now take that hurt and never let go until you die. You see, what we're supposed to be doing, we're supposed to be living in a season of healing. It takes a while. And sometimes there are many, many steps to that healing. But Wherever you are right now, there is a call of God on your life to lean forward and move into healing. It's not easy to do, but I promise you, whatever it is that is in your mind and your heart, even as we speak about this, you are not supposed to hold that till you die. You are supposed to be in the process of gaining freedom and healing and forgiveness and release from that hurt, that bitterness, and that anger. Now, I do need to let you know that you're releasing that anger does not mean that the hurt never happened. And it does not mean that the other person's going to get away with it. What it does is that hands it over to God. 
who I promise you understands and cares more about justice than you ever have for a moment. And he has the ability to do it. What it does is it says, I'm going to release owning this and cherishing this and hugging this and making sure that wherever I pack that I carry my hurt, my bitterness, and my anger and my wounds. The reality is that if we are holding on to grief, to bitterness, to hurt, all of those things, it will always block our spiritual growth. It just does. It becomes just this, it just becomes this hard place that the grace of God can't flow over our lives because we are holding it. In fact, Jesus tells multiple times, he says, listen, you can't be forgiven while you're refusing to forgive someone else. It is a blockage that holds up the whole process. So this does not mean that you have to hop, skip, and jump out of here today and say, well, it's just gone. But it does say that you have to move and begin to release that. How do you do that? It's not easy. It's not easy. But how do you do that? One, you talk deeply with God about it. You make sure that You've had a conversation with him and, and you've borne your heart with him and you've explained to him, this is why this hurts. This is why this bothers me so much. This is why this is such a painful experience in my life. And talk to him. He knows the whole story, but you talk to him about it. Hand him ownership of this hurt, this bitterness, this grief, this pain. And then secondly, do exactly what God tells Samuel to do in this passage. Take up your horn of oil and go. That's a strange sentence. But what that horn of oil was, here is the task that you're supposed to do that leans toward the future. Go and begin to move beyond this harm from the past. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But what it means is you begin to lean into the future. Samuel, stop sulking and pouting over yesterday. And let me begin to do a new work in your life for tomorrow. Man, I would pray that for you. I would pray that for you. I doubt that there's a person who's sitting in the service this morning that doesn't have a specific situation, person, experience that has immediately come to mind when we're talking about this. And in fact, the temptation is to say, God, I'll give you a lot of parts of my life, but you're not touching that. That's mine. But no, that's the piece that he really wants to talk to you about. That's the piece that he really wants for you to let go. Pick up your horn of oil and go move to what's next. Because as long as you're cherishing that hurt, that pain, that bitterness, then it's a blockage for your spiritual growth. Now, let's take a look at what actually happens here in terms of what happens when Samuel does pick up that horn and go. He goes to Jesse's house, and what we discover is that there is a different way in which God chooses than how we choose. We choose differently than how God chooses. So the announcement is coming that the 
Samuel is going to Jesse's house. One of his sons are going to be anointed. This is a really big deal. I'm sure that everybody takes a bath that day so that they look good, sharpest, get their newest clothes out there. They're ready to go. And here comes the first son that comes by. And Samuel says, oh, my heart be still. Look at this guy. God, you sure know what you're talking about. You sent me to the right house. You sent me to the right uh, family. Boy, look at this guy. This has got king material all over him. And God says, Samuel, what are you doing? The whole problem that we had with Saul is that we looked at his external values, how tall he was and how strong he was, and we chose because of the outside instead of the inside. And the Word of God says, God does not look at the outside, but he looks at the heart. And in fact, he tells Samuel, don't look at how tall he is, because that's what you did with Saul. And so the next son comes by, and the next son comes by, and in fact, seven sons come by. And Samuel's looking at them to try to determine their king material, and God says no to every single one of them. You see, we really struggle to see the world the same way that God sees them. We just cannot help but, but see the things that are on the outside look good and strong, whether it be a person, whether it be a job, whether it be a house, whatever it is. We, we just know how to look at the outside. And we are so used to seeing the outside. And God says, you've got to know what that heart is because that's where life moves. That's where things happen. You've got to see the heart. You see, one of the great things that we could learn how to do in our lives is to begin to see the world the same way that God sees it. Begin to have our eyes adjust so that we can see the things that really, really matter and not just the things that are splattered on the surface. Isaiah chapter 55 uh, says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen, if we were to compare the weight of my wisdom versus the weight of God's wisdom, it's a little bit of a mismatch, isn't it? Uh, so what we have to do is we have to learn inside of ourselves, how do we see this as God sees it and choose the very things that God would have chosen? Now, there's a little bit of an interesting footnote in this moment because God says, don't focus on the outward. And then here comes David. And you know what the passage tells us? That he was ruddy and handsome and had beautiful eyes. Now, I got to tell you that I was confused by that. If the Word of God says, don't focus on the outside, why does the passage tell us, by the way, he's ruddy, he's handsome, and had beautiful eyes, which is what my yearbook thing said as well, um, <laughs> or something like that. Um, here's the thing that I think. They never even thought to look at David. He didn't even get invited to the table. He didn't even get invited to stay inside a town. He didn't even get to watch one of his brothers get anointed as king. He was so overlooked and so forgotten, they never would have seen David. But once God put his hand on David, it turns out, you know what? Turned out to be a pretty good choice. 
It turned out that David had attributes and characteristics that they never even thought of or noticed, but it turned out, huh, huh, God knew what he was doing. I will tell you that there are things that God will shape us and move us to. Sometimes he will shape us and move us to things that we've been saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And then when we finally become obedient and submissive to what it is that he wants to do, we find out that the very thing that we've been fighting against is ruddy, beautiful, and handsome. It's good, and it's rich, and it's great, because God knows what he's doing. One of my challenges for you this week is to, to just start Monday out praying, God, would you help me to see things the way you see them? Would you help me to see people the way that I see people, the, the way that God sees people? so that we can move through with a completely different perspective. There's one more thing in the text that I want us to notice today, and that is that there is a promise that we are not forgotten. Man, poor David. I mean, it is this huge family event. We don't know why he doesn't get invited. We don't know why they couldn't get someone else to watch the sheep that afternoon. I'm not sure why he gets left out. But basically... David comes in eighth place in a seven-person race. There are seven people invited. He doesn't even make the top seven. He's the eighth person he's completely forgotten about. I don't know what his thought was. I would tell you that he probably didn't see himself as being ahead of all of his brothers either. But it seems as though he's forgotten. And yet God sees him out there and says, that's the one I want. No one else notices David. No one else thinks of David. Jesse doesn't think of David, but God sees David. And then I want you to see as David is called in and, and Samuel says, listen, you better go get him because we're not even sitting down until he gets here. And they anoint David as the next king. And then it says that the spirit of the Lord rushes on him. He may have been forgotten by his earthly father, but he is not forgotten by his heavenly father. And the Spirit of God fills his life. We didn't read the rest of the chapter, but I love what happens in the rest of the chapter. So here is David, who doesn't even get invited to the party to watch something happen to one of his brothers. He's that much of a footnote and forgotten in the journey. The same time that the Spirit of God comes upon David, it leaves Saul. And Saul is left with a spirit of trouble, a spirit of, of difficulty, a spirit of evil. And it so embeds inside of him that, that he cannot find any peace. And as the people around him are both concerned about Saul's lack of peace and probably the fact that if the king ain't happy, nobody's safe, they're like, man, we, we, we got to do something for you, Saul. Here's an idea someone says. We should bring in a musician. We, we need to bring in someone who's, who's just really can play some really cool tunes uh, that'll just help you kind of chill and relax. And so they say, well, that's a great idea. And then someone else who's in the room says, I know a guy who knows a guy. There's a kid in Bethlehem that plays a mean harp. And they go and they knock on David's door and he is drafted to serve right there, at, right beside Saul, right there in the palace. 
You see what, it, what happened there? He's, he's left out of this whole thing. His dad doesn't even imagine that he could be the guy. And then the next thing you know, he is serving in the very palaces, the very corridors of power in the palace. God does that. I, I just kind of think of, of Jesse. First of all, he's still reeling about, it was David? David was the guy? And he's still thinking, well, I don't see how David could do that. He's just the kid. He's the sheep herder. I don't see how I could do that. Wait a minute. He's working in the palace right now? It's an amazing movement that God does uh, in his life. Now, I do want to say one thing very quickly. I think that it's possible that as much as we misunderstand people in terms of looking at the outside instead of looking at the inside, we can also misunderstand jobs and tasks. Now, you see, if I tell you that you are, that you are not forgotten, and I tell you that, listen, God can move you into any position. God can do that. We, we begin to imagine for ourselves, well, there might be a great position of platform for me. There, there might be a great opportunity for me to stand in front of a lot of people. There, there's a great place for me to, to be a high-influence person. I'll tell you that when I was coming up junior high and high school, uh, there, there was a growing sense inside of my life that I wanted to honor God with my life. That I wanted to be a person who would, who would bring glory to God and that, that, that people would recognize God because of that. And so I had figured out how I would do that. Uh, I was going to be a, a successful athlete. That, that, that was the plan. And that I just kind of knew that if I could be, if I'd work hard and become a successful athlete, boy, I would be able to tell lots of people about Jesus. I had kind of worked out the whole plan, and, and this was when I would reach the national level, would be at this age, and I'd work out all of this things. The platform was all set, because that's what I was going to do for God. That was the big platform that I had. Well, spoiler alert, you're looking at me and saying, well, you're really average to become a professional athlete. Turns out you were right, and I was wrong. But what God had for my life is he had a calling on my life to be a pastor. And that's what he's called and had my life be spent out for 25 plus years now. And so while I said, you know the way I'm going to have influence for God, I'm going to do it as a professional athlete. But it turned out that the way that God had it for me would begin by being a pastor. But I'll also tell you that the closest that I've ever come to hearing the audible voice of God was on a Saturday night. I was walking. I was praying about the Sunday to come. I was so anxious about Sunday the next day. And God spoke to me and said that whatever I do as a pastor, whatever I do as a pastor won't come close to my task as being a husband and a dad. Now, I haven't always gotten that right. But I'm going to tell you that I wanted to be an athlete. God says you're going to be a pastor. But what he's told me is the big place where my life is going to make a difference is being a husband and a dad. Let me tell you, this world doesn't need more social media influencers. It needs friends. It doesn't need more famous people. It needs more famous, faithful people. It doesn't need people who, who are so impressive because they accomplish all of these things. 
It needs people who will stay married for 40, 50, 60 years. It needs people who will speak the truth of Jesus with the voice of Jesus. It needs people who will live their life in a way that not only is spoken, but lived. And so while I say that God has got a plan for your life and you are not forgotten and there is a place that he's got for your life, you may be thinking, big platform. And he says, listen, I just need you to be friends to your neighbor. That's what I've got for you right now. That's the assignment. Now, just as much as we overlook and we look at the outside, God says, see the heart. And it doesn't just apply to people. It applies to tasks as well. What are the what nows? The what nows are, man, where are you in healing? That, that hurt that, that, that immediately came to mind when we began to talk about hurt and anger and bitterness. Where, where are you on healing? Man, it's possible that you've said, I don't want to heal because I want to stay right here in contact with this pain. Man, would, would you begin the process of letting that go? Begin the process. Maybe you're a long ways. Maybe there's just one more step of restoration that needs to happen. And you're like, you know what? God has really released a lot of that anger. But there's still one more step that needs to happen. I don't know what that is in your life. But would you respond to that? I would also just encourage you to again, pray for God's eyes in everything that you see this week. So that you'd see it like he sees it and not like we see it. And then whatever it is that you've been given this week, will you embrace it as though it's the assignment that God gave you? Big, small, seems like just a step in the process, whatever it is. Let me tell you, God set up David to be a sheep herder, a musician, so that he could eventually become a king. I don't know what it is that he's got going on in your life this week, but here's my promise to you. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. He has hand chosen the things that you're going to deal with this week to grow you and build you and develop you in your walk with God. Would you embrace those instead of looking right past them?